first scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through to 12, which um, I've selected because uh, we'll be looking at God's uh, decree and uh, his predestination in uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 3. And Ephesians 1, this is one of the uh, go-to passages if you want to talk with uh, people about uh, the matter of predestination and God's eternal purposes. It's, uh, you sometimes meet uh, people from other churches who aren't convinced about that, but this is one of the best passages to go to because it's chock-a-block full of predestination language. Chock-a-block. And we'll read some of that from verses 3 to uh, 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And uh, we will stop there, but the passage does go on with more of that language. And for something rather similar, would you turn please to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11, that's the text for the sermon. And then after that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, articles 1 and 2. Isaiah 46, from verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. And uh, then in your uh, bulletin you should find a copy of the Westminster chapter 3 and articles 1 and 2.
chapter is headed of God's eternal decree. And Article 1. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And Article 2, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the certainty of your word, the certainty of its promises, the certainty of the the truths it states with its uh, authority and inerrancy, for the a certainty, the rightness of its commandments, all of that reflecting your infinite knowledge, your faithfulness and your holiness. Father, help us to see that again today as we hear your word preached. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, when uh, kings or queens throughout history have issued official orders... These are sometimes referred to as royal decrees. The closest thing, I guess, for a president, such as what you might find in the United States, would be an executive order, something of that kind. Such orders often amount to either rulings on particular matters or on giving rules that must be followed or obeyed. And in human history, sometimes those are good things, good rules and good rulings, uh, good decrees, and sometimes they are bad. God also issues royal decrees. They issue forth from him as the great king. But when we talk about his decree, we are not just talking about decisions and laws that are conveyed to his people in time, though he does do that as well through the giving of his word, No, the Westminster in this third chapter is uh, talking about God's decree in this sense, talking about his eternal rulings. Because as we've already seen in the section on the doctrine of the Trinity, God is independent of his creatures and he is unchangeable in who he is. And so when he makes decree or decrees, uh, he does so according to it is what comes out of his eternal nature and uh, not something that's uh, governed in any way by creatures or by circumstances. So the decree is often defined this way and we find it here in this chapter as well. It's a, a very common kind of definition in Reformed writings. It is referring the decree to God's eternal purpose according to his own counsel, as opposed to the advice and counsel of others, by which he foreordains all that comes to pass. 
Now, this text also refers to God's single purpose in verse 10. The eternal decree of God uh, referred to here in this chapter in order to warn and also to instruct Israel. Three points as we look at this matter and this text. A call, first of all, there is a call to remember. Secondly, a call to recognise God's sovereignty. And third, a call to trust. A call to remember, to recognise God's sovereignty and to trust. In the first place then, the way the Lord leads his people into the awareness of these issues around his decree is to call upon them to remember in verses 8 and 9. And the word remember, as, as it's translated here, is used twice in these verses. And then there is an additional parallel expression, recall it to mind. And that creates a fair bit of emphasis in this section, an emphasis on remembering, because three times that idea is repeated here. And all of this language refers to uh, a very, making a very uh, deliberate effort to cause yourself to remember. So it's not just happening to recall something. Uh, it's a matter of sitting down and saying, I'm going to dwell on these things. I'm going to meditate on these things. I'm going to make the effort for these things to be imprinted on my mind. And not only on my mind, the language here is actually the language of the heart. It's translated, call it to mind, but literally it reads, call it to heart. In other words, it's to be something that lies upon the whole person, not just some mere intellectual exercise. So it means really dwelling on these things and really meditating upon them. But on what? What is it? What is the this that is to be remembered? What is the it that is to be called to mind? Well, I would suggest two things here in this passage. First of all, in terms of the context here, there is a call to remember the, the emptiness, the uh, foolishness, the vanity of idolatry. And that is warned against, for example, in verses 5 to 7, immediately before, but also in the previous chapter. And when the people of Israel are called transgressors in verse 8, one of the reasons for that is because they had not remembered this, they had chosen to forget this truth, and they had allowed themselves to become influenced by all the idols of the nations around. And then the second thing that they are to call to mind and to remember, and it comes by way of contrast to that, so remember, idols are rubbish, idols are foolish, they're vanity, they're empty and so on, they can't do anything for you, remember that. But by way of contrast, Remember the former things long past that the living God has revealed to you. In other words, remember the history of redemption as the scripture records that. Uh, remember what God has done in his great and his gracious dealings with his people. In chapter 46 verse 4 you get some uh, reference to that where the people of Israel are reminded that God Essentially what God is saying to them in verse 4, a little earlier in that chapter, uh, he's saying, look, for centuries I have been carrying you, Israel. I've been carrying you for centuries. Do you honestly think that I'm going to stop doing that now? 
that you should turn to idols and try and get them to carry you? Why would you think that for a moment? For centuries I've been doing this and I am going to keep carrying you into the future. And that's the other thing they are to remember. Uh, What we've got here is a kind of opposite almost to the principle of uniformitarianism. Some of you may have heard of that. Those of you who read uh, creation ministries material and similar, uh, the principle of uniformitarianism in especially in geology but sometimes other sciences too, Uh, the idea that the present processes that we see around us going on in the world, that you can use those to interpret what happened in the past on the assumption that everything's going on at the same rates in the same kind of way and there's no God to speed or slow those processes or do something different. The present is the key to the past and so we've got a world that must be millions of years old, etc. That's the secular principle of uniformitarianism. But here there is a biblical principle of uniformitarianism, and it's the opposite way around, in a sense, that the past is the key to the present and the future. Because God has not changed, and he never does. And so what he has done in the past and what he has said in the past is the key to understanding the present and the future. He has always carried his people in the past, which demonstrates the truth stated in Scripture that he will continue to carry you in the present and in the future. And uh, if you're at all worried about 2021 and what uh, may happen, and uh, there's all sorts of things that could happen as we think about that, Uh, 2021, COVID-19 continuing, resurging, new strains and so on. You're worried about those kind of things or whatever else it may be. This is a really great thing to meditate on, an important thing to meditate on, to remember, to meditate on, to take to heart at the start of this new year. For the Lord says you can be assured of this help. That's the point he's making, verse 8, of his help and his care. But not only of that, also you can be assured of what those things say about the uniqueness of God over against the idol gods. For the entire history of God's dealing with his people, always according to the promises in his word, this is in contrast to the deafness and the blindness and the impotence of those non-existent idol gods. And uh, chapter 45 in Isaiah, verse 20 forward, uh, certainly draws attention to the impotence of those gods. You speak to them, but they're deaf. You can cry out to them, but they're not going to hear and they're not going to help you. So the entire history of God's dealing with his people is set in contrast to that to make the point that God, the God of the Bible, is the only true and living God. He alone is God. There is no other God and there is no one else like him. Verse 9 says that. And this is made clear to remind Israel to turn away from their idols and to turn back to God. And this is really one of the reasons why we have history books in the Bible, redemptive history books in the Bible. It's to make precisely this point to us. The scripture proclaims the reality of the only true and living God. We could almost say it assumes the reality of the only true and living God. And then in the historical books, it demonstrates the evidence of that in his impact on history. 
and on this world. An impact that no idol ever makes or can make. There is, however, even more to this study of redemptive history than just that it shows us something of the existence that demonstrates the existence and the uniqueness of the Lord. Because here in this passage we're drawn back even further to see the absolute sovereignty of the Lord and his eternal purposes. Our second point, a call to recognize God's sovereignty. For in this history of redemption we find this kind of thing going on so often that the Lord prophesies in the predictive sense. He says things that are going to happen in the future. He has declared the end from the very beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, in other words, things which hadn't even happened yet, but God declares them from ancient times to his people. Think of the prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Already you read that in the very beginning in Genesis 3 verse 15. Or think of what is said about the crucifixion, even the details of the crucifixion of Christ in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and such passages. Or the prophecies concerning the judging of the nations at the end of time, which is still in our future. Psalm 2, Isaiah 66, passages like that. And you see this has so many implications about God's sovereignty. For one thing, it shows the sovereignty of God's providence. The Lord must be in charge of history, in charge of what happens in history, in charge of reality, in order to ensure that every single thing he says that he has prophesied about the future, that that will always and always has come to pass. This matter of providence is referred to by way of example in verse 11. God calls a bird of prey from the east. And uh, this isn't just talking about ornithology. This is talking about Cyrus. Cyrus is the bird of prey. Swift, savage, the bird of prey who comes from the east, from Persia, and carries out God's sovereign purposes concerning Babylon as he defeats the Babylonian Empire, which in time leads to the return of God's people from exile uh, at a time now when Isaiah writes when they're getting increasingly worried about what Babylon's going to do to them. And so this uh, comforting word is, is given to them that God will send the bird of prey who is the man of God's purpose even though Cyrus didn't realise that. The man of God's purpose whom God uses in his providence. Providence is God's governing, uh, upholding, maintaining, providing his provision for his world. But behind that lies his eternal purpose or plan for the world. And that is where this matter of God's decree comes in. As I said before, the decree is the Lord's eternal purpose according to his own counsel by which he ordains all things that come to pass in history, including the defeat of Babylon by Cyrus. Verse 10, therefore, infers from this that God can declare future things 
because of his purposes, because they are such that they will always be established. And there's nothing that can thwart that. There's nothing that can thwart God's purposes. And for that reason, the Lord can absolutely guarantee every prophecy he puts in the mouth of the prophets, which in turn demonstrates that God alone is God because no idol has ever been able to do anything remotely like that. Notice also a parallel term here for God's purpose. It is put in terms of his good pleasure. And we read from Ephesians 1, which also uses that kind of language about God's, uh, the kind intention of his will and his purpose. And uh, this is what the Westminster is summarizing by saying, most the most, when it refers to the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely purposed, rather than being constrained by circumstances or by the future or by other creatures. In other words, God purposed from eternity what he was pleased to ordain without advice, without pressure, without assistance from any other. The Lord certainly, and I've said this before on a number of occasions, the Lord did not simply look into the future and see what fate had decreed, It's not fate who has the decree, it's God. God doesn't simply look into the future and see what fate had decreed and then do his best to lay his plans accordingly to fit around what fate had decreed in order to do what he wanted in the future. To say that would be to say that fate was really the one decreeing the future, but it is not. It is the Lord who decrees And uh, as I've mentioned too before, I've quoted this before, but I'll say this again too, because uh, this is a very useful and a very profound statement by the Church Father Augustine, that when God looks into the future, the only thing he sees is what he has already predestined. Nothing else. There is no other future. Now that does not deny, as the Westminster points out, the importance of secondary means. God purposed in eternity both the final outcomes and the means that he would use in his providence for accomplishing those purposes. For example, he decreed that Babylon would be defeated, taken over by a dynasty that would, in due time, allow God's people to return from exile. And in his providence... He used as one of the means for carrying out that purpose the great King Cyrus. Even though, as I mentioned, Cyrus, the man of God's purpose, didn't necessarily know he was the man of God's purpose. Moreover, as the Westminster points out, this does not destroy such liberty as humans have in their fallen state, not the mythological liberty of free will. Uh, Free will defined as a freedom to choose God, to choose the Lord Jesus Christ unaided, is uh, something that the fallen man does not have. It is a myth. There is no free will of that kind since the fall. But on the other hand, God does not compel or force men to act against their nature. And that is the liberty that the Westminster is referring to here. Cyrus acted as he did because Cyrus wished to act. He willed to act as he did. And God did not compel him to do that. 
He did not need to compel him to do that, but nevertheless, uh, God had foreordained all of these things according to his own good pleasure and purpose. The Lord, as the Westminster also states, is not the author or the enforcer of sin, but unlike the idol gods who can purpose and affect nothing, the Lord's good, eternal purpose, decree and providence lie behind everything that happens, including all the things that we find so difficult in life. Well, the last part of verse 11 in the third and final place, uh, calls on God's people, implicitly uh, calls on us to trust in God's purpose and in his word. This is a kind of summary of what the Lord has been revealing through Isaiah here. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. In other words, the Lord will keep every single one of his good promises. And you'll note that the Lord Jesus also used a double truly in many of his teachings and promises. Truly, truly, I say to you. And the Lord Jesus could do that in the same sense in which it is stated here about God that when he speaks, truly he will bring it to pass because he is God. He keeps his word in everything. And every word that the Lord Jesus has said likewise, as with Yahweh, as we find him speaking in the Old Testament, Uh, the Lord Jesus likewise as God, uh, everything he says, every one of his good promises. Similarly, we read in verse 11, I have planned it, surely I will do it. His plans always come to fruition. What he has foreordained will always be carried out, effected in his providence. And as it is for Yahweh in the Old Testament, so it is for the Lord Jesus once again, because he is God, In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, we find there that the Lord Jesus is put forward as the God of creation. By him all things were created, and also the God of providence. In him all things hold together. And then we are told that the reason for that is because it was the Father's good pleasure, his eternal foreordained purpose for all of the fullness, that is all the fullness of deity, to dwell in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord Jesus says that he came to save sinners, you can remember and you can be assured, as with everything else to do with God's purposes, that this promise will surely be established. It is not subject to interference from creatures, not even interference from devils, or circumstances, either present or future. Now, uh, no doubt there are many uncertainties about the year ahead. There are uncertainties about the year ahead for Israel, especially as they worried about what was going on with Babylon. And the situation is not essentially different. We have many things that we could focus on if we want to trouble ourselves and to become fearful. I mentioned COVID-19 area, but earlier, uh, but uh, there may be other areas of health that you're concerned about or financial matters or the possibility of more and more government interference with the church and her mission, increasing persecution of Christians, the spiritual health of the Reformed Churches of New Zealand or the next generation, the spiritual health 
of the next generation in our churches. But a Christian ought not to be governed by fear and uncertainty because we know the God who is sovereign and unchangeable and faithful and all-knowing and all-powerful and gracious and loving to his people. The God of eternal, the eternal decree, who has declared his purposes and who will bring them to pass and to do all that he has promised. Just after the um, uh, terrorist attack in Christchurch, the police came round to the uh, door here and they were seeking to give us assurances and they said, uh, is there, has anything been happening in your church that you're worried about? Any individuals causing you any trouble around the place? Uh, are you worried about perhaps an attack on the church? Well, we're here for you and uh, if you want, we can have a presence here when you conduct your services. Those kind of assurances were given to us and no doubt to other churches as well. And if you trust those assurances, it gives you a certain amount of uh, confidence, a feeling of confidence that uh, if there should be reprisals of any sort, then um, there's the police there to help you and to try and protect you. But let us remember that the one, the God that we know and uh, who, in whose hand we are held, he is the one who is a greater ruler and with an infinitely more effective order or decree concerning his church and his elect. The, uh, the kind intention toward us that he has purposed in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 1 puts it, that he has determined according to his own counsel. No interference then and no interference. No one can interfere now. Everything he has predestined about us that is established as Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 uses that similar sort of language to Isaiah 46. And this is uh, something in which we ought to be trusting. But it's not just a matter of trusting God's assurances without being unduly fearful or anxious. There will also no doubt be temptations that we face to pursue one kind of idolatry or another in the year ahead. Again, something Israel faced. The temptation to look for help from idols rather than from the living God. In our case, probably not so much the idols of the well-known religions of the world, but the Western idols. The Western idols of entertainment and materialism, the worship of the creature of self rather than the creator. But there too we need to trust the God of the decree over against trusting these idols that are impotent and cannot in any way help or bless us. Because God's decree regarding us, his predestined purpose, his, pre his uh, predestination according to his purposes, is that we would be created in Christ for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Not for believers to be swallowed up by idolatry, but for pursuing good works. God has planned it, he has spoken it, and he will do it. He will enable us to resist idols, to resist sin, as we look to him. And as uh, you move into 2021 then, keep before you this 
They're the strong assertions in this passage. Believe it and trust it and let it, let it govern both the way that you strive to do God's will and resist the devil at the same time, but also your confidence in the Lord over against all anxiety and fear. For the great king has planned it, an eternal, unchanging decree. He has planned it, he has spoken it, and he will do it. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to deal with our anxieties and fears, our lack of trust concerning what lies ahead in this world of pandemics and other diseases, this cursed world of threats of persecution and of war. And will you enable us to remember that you are not merely the God who responds to the dangers and the problems that face us, trying to make the best of bad situations, but you are the God who has foreordained all that comes to pass according to your eternal and unchanging purpose and plan. And Father, it is a good purpose and a good plan, one that will bring glory to your name and blessing to your people. Will you help us to trust that, to trust you? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord fulfills the counsels of his sovereign will in love and in truth. Psalm to hymnal 226 will stand to sing and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 226.
after the blessing is uh, doxology. We sing number 301, stanzas 1 and 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.